Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35, let's take a look at it together here. It says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And the other little boats were also with him. At this point in his ministry, Jesus was enjoying tremendous popularity. It wasn't just hundreds of people coming out to listen to him, it was thousands. They were attracted not only by the incredible power and, and I might say, brilliance of his teaching, they were also attracted by his miraculous works. Where there were people demon-possessed, Jesus delivered them. Where there were people who were sick and infirm, Jesus healed them. The power of Jesus was very present, and his teaching was touching and changing the lives of people. So it wasn't just people from the immediate area coming, it was thousands coming from surrounding areas to, to hear Jesus. And as the crowds pressed upon Jesus, they would rush in on him virtually, and he, he couldn't speak upon the, above the pressing crowds. And so what he would do, we saw this earlier in Mark chapter 4, is he would make a boat his pulpit, and he would sit or stand in a boat anchored just a few yards off the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as he sat in the boat, he could speak to the multitude assembled there on the shore and project his voice over to the multitude, and he could teach the multitude from the boat. And after a long day of teaching, it tells us there in verse 35 that evening had come. You can imagine Jesus teaching all afternoon long, and it can be tiring. It can be a bit exhausting to put yourself forward and to, and to explain and with heart and with passion to bring forth the word of God. Jesus is tired. Now he knows that there's not going to be any rest for him if he gets off that boat and goes on to shore. The multitudes will flock around him again, and it'll be like Jesus is a magnet drawing everybody. So what he says is he suggests another plan to the disciples. He says, look, I'm in the boat. I'm going to stay in the boat. You guys get in the boat, and we'll go across the other side. They're going to sail across or row across the Sea of Galilee. We call it the Sea of Galilee, though it's not really a sea. It's not as large as the Mediterranean Sea or the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea. Not at all. It's a smaller body of water. We would call it a lake. It's 13 miles long at its longest, and it's 8 miles wide at its widest. And the particular place where Jesus was going from and, and going to arrive to in the beginning of, of Mark chapter 5 it was about a 5-mile journey across the lake. And Jesus commanded his disciples, says, guys, let's go. You notice he says there in verse 35, let us cross over to the other side. He didn't say, let us perish in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He said, let us cross over to the other side. And they got in and they started across. Now, I don't want to spoil the story for anybody, but a storm is going to come up on the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to have to deal with this. And we're reminded of another instance in the Bible when a man got into a boat and a great storm arose and lives were imperiled. It's the story of Jonah. But if you remember, Jonah got into that boat because of his disobedience. A lot of times, that's what we like to say. Well, of course there's storms in your life. It's because you're disobedient, right? You're just like Jonah. Well, maybe not. Maybe you're just like Jesus and the disciples. Because uh, the disciples got into the storm because of their obedience to the Lord. And there they were, setting out across the lake. Now, as they make their way along, I want you to notice something else sort of touching in verse 36. It says, other little boats were also with him. 
You can just imagine as Jesus taught from the shores of the Sea of Galilee, not only would there be people on the, the shore who wanted to listen to him, but also other people in their boats would kind of cruise on up to him and say, well, we'll listen from our boat. And they would sit there and come alongside Jesus. And there was all little, well, Jesus was like the admiral of a little flotilla here crossing the lake. Several other little boats with them as they make their way across. And what happens? Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Now the Sea of Galilee is well known for its sudden violent storms. The geography, the weathered patterns of the area make it the place where a very likely condition exists for sudden windstorms to come sweeping down upon the lake. And when the wind often comes great waves and and crashing seas and oftentimes rain or whatever other conditions come along and you can just see this boat being rocked on this lake, uh, waves are crashing over the side of the boat, filling it with water. The disciples are are concerned about this. They're they're bailing the water out. They're trying to position the boat in the right way. You see all this kind of difficulty going on. And in the midst of it all, what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Look at it here, verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. You know, this is one of those little touches that reminds us that the Bible was written from the record of eyewitnesses. Who else but an eyewitness would say that he was asleep on a pillow? That's someone who saw it that told Mark about this. Probably Peter. Peter probably told Mark this story, and he said, I remember, I can see it just like it was yesterday. He was asleep on a pillow. If you were making this up, you'd just say he was asleep. But because this is the record coming from eyewitnesses, these little beautiful details are in there, and there he is, asleep on a pillow, And it says, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I think it's remarkable simply that Jesus was asleep. One of the things that's remarkable about it is that reminds us that Jesus was really human. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? We're very zealous to put forth and to protect and to honor the deity of Jesus Christ because the Bible teaches us clearly that Jesus is God. Friends, let's remember what the biblical teaching about the nature of Jesus is. It's not only that he is God, but also that he is man. Truly God and truly man. And it's Jesus the man asleep on the pillow. There he is. He's worn out at the end of the day. He's not Superman. He's not rushing into the phone booth and ripping off his clothes. And it's Jesus the God underneath. No, he's asleep. He's tired. He's worn out. It's been a long day. The crowds have pressed upon him. He's taught with all of his heart, with all of his strength. He became weary. And sometimes he caught a bit of sleep wherever he could catch it. And Jesus is asleep on the boat. I think it's also remarkable, the fact that Jesus could sleep. It shows that there's a peace in his heart. You ever been kept awake late at night because of worry? Your mind is filled with all these things you're worried about. And many things we're worried about, they're just sometimes just plain foolish, aren't they? You know, Jesus said a lot of things he could have been worried about, and they weren't foolish. Did you know that at this very time, religious and political leaders were plotting the murder of Jesus? And he knew it. That would keep me up at night. (laughs) Jesus fell asleep. 
He could worry about his family, you know. He just uh, came against the instance where his own family wanted to commit him to a, well, they wanted him to get some rest and relaxation. They thought he was losing it. Thought he was having a nervous breakdown. He was going a little bit crazy. That'd make me worried. Jesus fell asleep. Jesus could have been worried about the overwhelming crowds with their overwhelming needs. You know, he just got done teaching thousands of people, and every one of those people wanted a personal touch from Jesus. Every one of those people had their own needs, their own hurts, their own difficulties, and they wanted Jesus to touch and to make the difference in their lives. And Jesus loved them, and he knew God loved them, and he knew that that he wanted to touch those lives. And sometimes those needs can press upon a minister and just become overwhelming. But Jesus didn't worry about that. He slept. He could have just opened his eyes and looked around the boat and looked at the people he had chosen for disciples and he could have got worried right there. But Jesus didn't worry. He slept. You know, with all these things to worry about, Jesus wasn't worried at all. He could have worried about the future. The shadow of the cross was cast over everything in his life. He knew what awaited him in Jerusalem just a few months down the way, but no, no. He was able to sleep even in a rocking boat. So this sleep was not just the sleep of human weariness. It was also the rest of faith. Because Jesus could put his head down, even in a rocking boat, when the boat's filling with water. The disciples are no doubt arguing with each other. And he slept. That is, he slept until they woke him up. Verse 38. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you think it's remarkable that the wind didn't wake him? The arguing of the disciples didn't wake him. The water splashing over the edge into the boat, that didn't wake him. But at the cry of his disciples, he instantly awoke. You can picture the scene, can't you? Well, Jesus is sleeping. He doesn't care. We're in trouble here. Let's get this thing fixed. Come on, we know what to do. We're fishermen, and we, we, we've solved problems like this before. You've got to bail harder. You've got to put the boat in the right direction. You've got to row at a certain cadence. We've got it, and Jesus is sleeping there. In the midst of all of it, as Jesus rests, all he needs to hear is one of the cries from his disciples. At the cry of his disciple, he's instantly awoke. He was like the mother who sleeps through all kinds of racket going on, but at the slightest noise from her little baby. The little baby sighs, and she wakes up. What's wrong with the baby? What can I do for her? Rushes to the baby's side. You see how responsive Jesus is to the needs of his disciples? Maybe sometimes you're in the midst of the storm, and it seems to you like Jesus is sleeping. Cry out to him. Cry out to him louder and louder. Make your cry to Jesus. And he will, if it seems like he's sleeping, don't worry about it. You cry out to Jesus. He knows your need. He's taking care of things. But don't necessarily say what the disciples said at the end of verse 38. Teacher, well, that's a fine way to start. That's fine. Do you not care? Well, that's not a good way to address Jesus, as we'll see later on. Do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I think that the emphasis here in their statement is on the we. In other words, Jesus, don't you know that we're going down? Now, we're working on this, Jesus. We're bailing. We're rowing. There's Peter back at the rudder trying to navigate the ship in the right direction. And you're sleeping. 
Jesus, your life is in peril here too. Don't you know that we are perishing? This boat goes down, you go down too, mister. Maybe you better wake up and get a bucket and help us bail. G. Campbell Morgan says that this was not a request to Jesus for him to do anything, but it was a protest against his apparent indifference. I sort of believe that even though the disciples were afraid, they probably felt they had the situation under control here. Let's remember, several among them were experienced fishermen, and they probably felt like they knew what to do. That They work hard at bailing out the water, they row in a certain rhythm, that they pilot the boat in a certain direction. More than anything, they're probably annoyed that Jesus didn't help them doing what they thought they should do. Don't you care that we are perishing? You know, we're often the same way in the way that we come to God when the storm is rocking our boat. I mean, we know what to do, right? We're experts in this kind of situation. And we want Jesus' help. Jesus, come help me bail out my boat. I know what to do. I can handle this one, Jesus. I just need you to help me do what my plan is. When we come to Jesus that way, we end up really just relying upon ourselves. Friends, you're relying on yourself, and you want Jesus to help you more successfully rely on yourself. No, Jesus wants to break us out of that. The great secret of strength in faith in Christ is to have no faith in ourselves. To be disappointed in yourself is to have trusted in yourself. So we need to learn after the pattern of the disciples and how Jesus ministers to them right now. He's not asleep. He wakes up and he's going to take care of this difficulty right now. What did he do? Verse 39. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I can just see one of the disciples shaking a bailing bucket at Jesus. Come on, get busy. Here it is. Jesus wipes the sleep from his eyes, looks at the situation. Look at the disciples. They're so upset for him. He's not pulling his own weight here. Come on, Jesus, you're going down too. You better help out here. Jesus ignores all of that. and He stands up and he looks around. And he rebukes the wind and he says, peace be still. When he says, peace be still... Many commentators say that you should actually, in the more literal rendering of the ancient Greek, say it's peace be muzzled. I think what it was, and I don't mean to give anybody offense here, I think it was a polite way of Jesus saying to the storm, shut up, quiet down, peace, be still. And it instantly was still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I think this is interesting because it kind of points to the fact that there was probably more than just the natural phenomenon of the geography and the weather of the Sea of Galilee behind the storm. Jesus uses the same words in rebuking the storm as he used to rebuke demonic spirits. There was probably a spiritual strategy of Satan to destroy Jesus, to attack Jesus and the disciples. They're weary, they're vulnerable. In addition to this, we also know that when Jesus arrives at his destination, which we will see next week in Mark chapter 5, when he arrives there, he's going to have a dramatic confrontation with a man who's uh, severely possessed by demons. 
Maybe this was part of a satanic strategy to stop the whole plan before it could be moved into Osh, uh, into action. This is uh, Satan's attack against Jesus. And so he comes up and he's just not talking to the weather. He's talking to demonic spirits. He says, peace, be still. You know, uh, one time I was on the Sea of Galilee. Wonderful trip to Israel. Ingalil was with me. We were sailing across the Sea of Galilee. You've got to do that if you go, right? You don't go to Israel and go to the Sea of Galilee without taking a boat trip across. And it started getting stormy, and it was kind of fun to be out there when it was stormy. Wind was blowing. The uh, rain was coming down. I even think we had a bit of hail, and it was just wonderful. And then it cleared up very quickly. The storms moved through there suddenly. Our teacher on the trip, Gail Irwin, he told us the story of, a, of another boat trip that he had across the Sea of Galilee many years before with a student tour group, and they had a very similar experience, except the storm was even more severe. And they're going across the Sea of Galilee, and the, the wind kicks up, and the waves, and all this, and they're getting rocked around. And one of the students, he thought, well, he'd just kind of do what Jesus would do. And so he stood up in the front of the boat, and the boat's chugging along, and there they are going into the storm. And the young man stood up, and he said to the, to the wind and the waves, he said, Peace, be still. And immediately the engines on the boat cut out. <laughs> he sort of backfired on them, I guess. And they got out of it okay and, and all. But it just shows us that this, this is something only Jesus can do, right? The disciples were well equipped to carry out their own plan. Bail the water, row the boat, put it in the right direction. But they couldn't do what Jesus could do. And as long as they were in the mindset of Jesus, just just help us fulfill our plan, they were thinking along the wrong ways. They they should have had Jesus do what only he could do, but he did it anyway. He stood up and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I want you to see as well that the disciples' plan helped only their boat. Now there were other boats with them, weren't there? And even if the disciples were to be successful in bailing out the water and rowing in the right direction and doing all that for themselves, well, maybe some of the other boats would have drowned along the way. And they would say, well, at least we made it. That wasn't good enough for Jesus. He wants that love to be extended to other people. And so Jesus did something that would not only help their boat, but every other boat in that storm when he said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. We might say the story's over, but it's not. Because now Jesus has some words to his disciples. And the words aren't, why did you wake me up? Jesus is going to apply a different point here when he says in verse 40, but he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? I want you to notice here, first of all, that Jesus sets fear and faith in contrast. When you're fearful... You have no faith. Fear is, of course, the great enemy to faith. When you're living, when you're walking, when you're thinking in fear, you're not trusting God. And Jesus addressed the disciples on this very point. First he said, why are you so fearful? I'm with you. And then he said, how is it that you have no faith? Isn't it amazing? The storm couldn't disturb Jesus. The storm didn't bother him. The water's washing over the sides. Maybe the disciples were arguing. All that, that didn't bother him. What bothered him was the unbelief of his disciples. Let me make it clear. I don't think Jesus was rebuking their initial fear. A small boat 
on a stormy lake, that can be a fearful circumstance. And there's something good in the fear that makes us say, all right, this is a serious situation. Let's get busy about this. Let's figure out what we're going to do. And that initial impulse of fear, that's just a reaction to the circumstance. I don't think that's what Jesus rebuked at all. But it's what they chose to do with that initial fear that made all the difference. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond after that initial fear? Are you going to say, okay, I know I'm in a difficult circumstance. I know this is a a, a potentially very fearful, dangerous situation. Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust in what you can do? They chose to trust in what they could do. That's why Jesus said, how is it that you have no faith? Jesus could say to these men, how is it that you have no faith? First of all, because they did not believe his word. After all, look at it there. In verse 35, he said, let us cross over to the other side. That's what he said. Let us cross over. Jesus didn't say, well, let's do the best we can and maybe we'll all drown. No, he promised a safe arrival. And the disciples could have chosen to trust in that promise, but they didn't. Instead, they they had no faith. They should have remembered, hey, Jesus said we're going to cross over. So his word is his promise. I'm going to trust that promise. Friends, when difficulty or fear comes rushing in upon you, you can choose to trust the promise of God. You can just take a great all-purpose promise, Romans 8, 28, where we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. That's a great all-purpose one, isn't it? Well, what reason do you have to fear? God's in control here. He'll work things, all things together for good. So you give the situation to God and you trust Him in it, not in your own efforts, not in your own wisdom. So that's one reason why Jesus could say that they had no faith, because they didn't trust His promise. Jesus could also say that they had no faith because they accused Jesus of a lack of care towards them. When they woke him, they said, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, friends, when we don't think that Jesus cares about us, it shows that we have no faith. Because Jesus does care about you. That's the truth of the matter. He cares more about you than anybody else you will ever know or ever meet. And just because we don't believe the truth about that doesn't mean that he stops caring. No, he keeps on caring. I know that sometimes it takes great faith to trust the sleeping Jesus. He seems so inactive. And sometimes we cry out to the Lord, and it seems like he doesn't do much. And it's like, well, God, are you sleeping? No, he's not asleep at all. At the right moment, at the right time, he will step forth and act. We need to know that he cares and works for us even when it does not seem like it. And this was the kind of trust that God wanted to build within the disciples. So very simply, Jesus could say, where's your faith? Why is it that you have no faith? But Jesus could also say that they had no faith because they forgot the big picture. When you really think about this whole scene, The unbelief of the disciples is foolish. It's ridiculous. It's laughable. Did they think that God in heaven was going to allow his chosen one, his Messiah, to perish in a boating accident on the Sea of Galilee? 
Like we're reading along here in the Gospel of Mark, and it says, well, they got into the boat, and when they left the multitude, in verse 37, a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling, and then the boat capsized, and they all died, the end of the story. I mean, does anybody think for a moment it could end like that? It just can't. Was it reasonable for these men, for whom Jesus, they, they knew that Jesus could see into the future, to think that he'd have them get on the boat if it was going to end such a way? Was it reasonable for them to think that he would have gone to sleep if he knew that there was such danger? No, he knew there was no great danger for them to drown. Was it reasonable for them to believe that the king of Israel would be drowned on that boat? It's nonsense. Friends, let me quote from Charles Spurgeon to say, Our unbelief, my brethren, seldom deserves to be reasoned with. Our fears are awfully intensely silly. And when we get over them and ourselves look back upon them, we are full of shame that we should have been so foolish. Our Lord kindly censured their unbelief because it was so unreasonable. You know, the smartest thing you can do, the most reasonable thing you can do, is trust in God. Believe in Him. For all these reasons. For the fact that these disciples of Jesus should have known better, we don't doubt Why it was that Jesus said to them in verse 40, how is it that you have no faith? You, you disciples, you know me, you've seen me work, you've heard me teach. How is it that you have no faith? And friends, I just want to ask you this morning, couldn't Jesus put the same question to us? You know all he's done in your life. You've seen his great works. You've had his word touch your heart. You've seen what he's done in your life in days long past, in the recent past, what he's doing right now, in all light of what Jesus has done in your life. How is it that you or I have no faith? Where's our excuse? We have none. God has shown his goodness to us so beautifully that it's just time for us to trust him. It's just time for us to believe him. Wrap it up here with a look at verse 41 where it says, And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, they were afraid when they were in the storm, but now they're really afraid because they look and they realize that it's no mere man with them. Yes, that one that seems so human, so vulnerable, sleeping just a moment before. You see the peace all over the face of Jesus as his eyes are shut and he's asleep there in the boat. And the next instant he's up and he's saying and doing things that no other man can do. He rebukes the winds of the wave. He says, peace be still. And a great calm comes over the lake. That's what made them afraid. They were more afraid when the storm was calm than when it was going because they knew they were in the presence of someone completely unique, someone fully human. They just saw him asleep, but also fully God, truly man, truly God. And they asked this beautiful question, verse 1, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? I'll tell you who it is. It's God, the Lord God. They saw right there the outshining of the deity of Jesus Christ in a beautiful and a majestic way. Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9 says, Of the Lord God who reigns in heaven, it says, You rule the raging of the sea. When the waves rise, you still them. And that's what Jesus did, demonstrating to his disciples that he is God. Sleeping one minute, ruling over all creation the next, they saw in the span of a few moments, Jesus is truly man, 
and truly God. All this shows the abiding care that God has for his people, doesn't it? G. Campbell Morgan said on this whole instance, he said, There are many Christians today who seem to think that the boat is going down. I'm tired of the wailing of some of my friends who take that view. The boat cannot go down. Jesus is on board. That's the only thing we have to worry about. Is Jesus on board? If he's on board, the boat's not going down. God's going to do his great work. Let me conclude with a look at one final thing that caught my eye in verse 36. Let me read that to you where it says, Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. You know what that means, don't you? It means they didn't go back on the shore and collect supplies or meet with other people. They just got in the boat and they went and they took Jesus as he was. But don't you like that line? Doesn't that speak to us about how we need to take Jesus as he was? Some people don't do that. Some people take Jesus as they wish he was. You know, they look at Jesus and they just want him to be sort of the the meek, uh, namby-pamby kind of guy, you know, skipping through the fields of the flowers and patting little children upon the head. Would never rebuke anybody or never make a stand for anything. And you need to say that, but you need to take him as he was. Yes, Jesus was a meek and gentle man, but you're just taking a small slice of it. You need to take him as he was, not as you wish he was. Other people look at Jesus and say, well, Jesus, there he is. He's the political reformer. He's come to make a revolution, to overthrow things, institute a new society. And you just want to plead with that person, take him as he was, not as you wish he was. Or there's Jesus, the the moral reformer. Yes, the man's going to put the law down and look around. If anybody's having fun, he's going to stop it. He's the moral reformer. No, you need to take Jesus as he was, not as you wish he was. That's where the word of God comes into us, right? It gives us Jesus as he was. You can't trust in your dreams of how he was and your visions. You need to come back to the word of God. You need to take Jesus as he was. And not just as others may present him to you. I mean, this morning I endeavor to present Jesus to you and I I do the very best I can to give him to you as he was. That's my sincere hope, my sincere joy as a pastor. And I hope we've done that this morning in a small slice. But there's so much more to who Jesus is than the one who slept on the boat and calmed the sea. Don't take that for your only picture of Jesus. You need to take him as he was. And the best I can do is still only the best I can do. So listen to me, listen to other faithful and godly teachers of God's word, but when it all comes down to it, you need to take Jesus as he was, not as others may present him. And finally, you you can't take Jesus as you might see him in the lives of others. You know, not always have Christians, both as individuals and as a group, represented Jesus Christ very well. I think back to dramatic examples in the Middle Ages and the times of the Crusades where people in the name of Jesus went out and committed incredible uh, tortures and, 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 and great barbarity in the name of Christ. If you were to take who Jesus was by looking at them, you'd get a very warped picture of Jesus. No, you need to take him as he was. 
And if you look at my life, you, you, you look at strengths and weaknesses, and in some things you could see Jesus as he was, but for the full picture, don't look at me, look at Jesus as he was. Friends, don't you want to do that this morning? Take him as he was. Don't let a false or a twisted picture of Jesus deceive you. Take him with you, and take him as he was. Let's pray and let the Lord speak that to our hearts this morning. Father, we know that the Jesus enthroned in heaven, the Jesus who walked around the the shores of Galilee, the Jesus who said, peace be still to the storm, and it did, we know that that Jesus can change our life. He can heal our bodies. He can save our soul. He can minister to us in the deepest place of our heart and comfort our pain and heal our hurts. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to come to that Jesus this morning. Jesus, as he was, not as we wish he was, not as others might tell us about how he was, and what we may see in the lives of others, but how he actually was. So Lord God, I pray for an outpouring of your spirit upon us, Teach us this, Lord, not only through the intellect, but on a deep spiritual level, who Jesus was and who he is right now enthroned in the heavens. Father, for the person who's hurting, I pray that Jesus would be their healing. To the person who's, who's sick, I pray that Jesus would be the one who restores them. To the person who's crushed under a burden of sin and guilt, Maybe it's secret sin crippling their life. Lord, bring restoration. Show them the forgiveness of Jesus. Pour out your spirit among us this morning. Send us out, Lord, with the spirit of God, working through the word of God in the lives of the people of God. to Touch this needy world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.